<laughs> let's get going. Uh, All right. Tim, let's start at the very beginning of your journey. Where are you from? Where were you born, raised? What kind of circumstances? Yeah, so I was born in Southern California, but I, I grew up in a family that moved around a lot because my dad worked in the automotive industry. And so every few years we would, we would change locations. And, um, you know, that put me in Seattle and Southern California and the Carolinas and uh, ultimately in Florida. And so, you know, that watching my dad, my dad worked for the same company for his entire career. And, you know, there were ups and downs of that business, of course. And so I saw that sort of translate to my, to my dad in terms of, you know, very long hours, um, quite a bit of uncertainty. And I picked up on that as a kid. And, you know, early on, I mean, I, I, I had sort of made up my mind that if, if this is how it is, I mean, if this is what, you know, I, I just assumed that all parents, all adults were experiencing that same thing, mm-hmm. then, you know, I might as well, you know, I might as well be in control. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm capable of screwing it up for myself. I don't need other people to do it for me. And I think, you know, that impression left, um, you know, I didn't appreciate that until I looked back on it. But that, that upbringing, sort of moving around the country and, you know, seeing my dad sort of deal with that was um, influential as I started to think about my career choices. Mm-hmm. What did you do for education? So I, I was a dual undergrad um, in, ec- in economics and accounting. So that's just a terrible combination, by the way. I don't recommend anybody put those two things together. Um, <laughs> Where it, was it, that? It, at Florida Atlantic University, which is a state school here in Florida, in South Florida. Okay. And, uh, you know, it, they're, they're both independently interesting and they're both independently valuable, but they stretch your brain in opposite directions. So maybe that's a good thing. I'm not sure, but it sure was a lot of work. Uh, <sighs> but, you know, um, it did influence, you know, my, my direction immediately out of school. I mean, the accounting degree did uh, land me a, a job uh, at one of the big accounting firms, and I immediately went into consulting. Uh, so I, I didn't stay in accounting very long. But I did get pulled into consulting because I had a really strong accounting background, and I got pulled into consulting, and that was my entree into technology, and it was really the delivery of technology, right? And so if you're going to be implementing financial systems and things like that, it helps a lot to understand the financial concepts rather than just look at it from a technical perspective, and that was sort of the door that opened for me. Okay. Um, so what happens, can step me through a little bit of your early career l- leading up to Zimit. Yeah, so within, you know, as soon as I graduated, I got this, I got the job at one of the big firms, and I stayed there for just really just a couple of years, two and a half years, I think, three years, something like that. And by 1997, I had co-founded my first company. Um, and, it, you know, it sort of turns out that the and co-founding being the operative word here because, you know, I had a co-founder that is still my co-founder today. So we've been Mm -hmm. together for more than 20 years. Um, And, you know, I can speak pretty, uh, you know, my story is his story and and vice versa, at least when it comes to our business. And um, so I felt, you know, looking back, I've been very fortunate to have uh, a partner that, you know, we really enjoy, we, we enjoy working together enough that we've been able to stay together for 20 years, but we're different enough that we complement each other really nicely. Um, and so in 1997, he and I uh, co-founded uh, a company called CPG that was a system integrator. So we were deploying large-scale software, other people's technology, and we also built our own products that complemented that, 
and we also built custom software when customers needed that to fill gaps and things of that nature. Um, and we were selling primarily into, we were primarily working with Oracle technologies, but not exclusively. Um, and we were selling to the large, you know, Fortune 500 companies mostly. And so from that point forward, you know, my career has really been centered on the enterprise market, the enterprise business market. Um, and so from that point, you know, we ran that company for about 13 years. Uh, it wasn't a straight line. You know, we went through Y2K and September 11th and the financial meltdown in 08 and 09. And so we, we you know, although it was tough to go through those periods, um, I think we probably learned more during those downturns than we did when things were going really well. And that's probably cliche, but it really is the truth. I mean, you really do learn a lot more when things aren't going well than you do when everything's going, you know, exactly according to plan. And so we ran that company for 13 years. Um, and then ultimately we were acquired in 2010 by a large international company. And that, that opened the door to the next phase, which is, you know, we, we stayed at that company for the next three years as part of our agreement, but they, they allowed us to take over the and run and manage the North American operation. And through a series of, acquisitions and organic growth and uh, a lot of effort, um, you know, that became a pretty significant operation, over $200 million a year. And that was the first time I had managed something at that scale. And that gave me a bird's eye view of what the services market really looked like at that level of scale. Um, and that taught me a lot. And that really was the seed that planted for Zimit, which came, you know, after, after we stepped down and took a little time off to rest and collect our thoughts, Zimit was born from that experience. So and when uh, we were your in, services yeah. business was uh, self-funded? Yeah, it was completely self-funded. We did not take on capital uh, during that process. Um, you know, the thing about services business is that they, they tend not to consume as much capital. They don't build as much of value. Course. We have right? a whole um, methodology track called the bootstrapping using services. We have courses on this. We have... You know, it's a tried and true method of bootstrapping. We see it all the time, and, and it's a very, very successful way to bootstrap companies. I could help. I could, if you ever need help teaching that class, I can help you teach it because when we get to the Zimit story, um, you're going to see that piece of it, that lesson, show up in a major fundamental way. Um, so uh, I have one question before we go to sure. the Zimit story. We will, we will pursue that angle for sure, but let me ask you something different. Um, mm -hmm. What was the scale that you got to with your with CPG before selling it? About twenty-five million. That's pretty substantial for a bootstrap company. And what kind of multiple did you get at the acquisition? So the multiple was about one point five. Okay. So it, and it was you and your co-founder who owned the company, right? We did. Now we had uh, we had we had provided options and and. Uh, equity for our employees, so we didn't own 100% of it, but yeah, we owned but, the majority of the company. Um, yeah. And, you know, a lot, of those, a lot of those folks showed up when Zim, the Zimit story kicked in. A lot of those QPLs showed up again. So, you know, we, taking care of people along the way is, is the, the right people is extremely important, and that's something that we've really uh, focused on from the very beginning. Very good. So, um, so just help me out with one piece of this story, um, and sure. the reason I'm spending a little bit of time on CPG is because, you know, in an entrepreneur's journey, the first time when you're doing it without any 
of your personal money is a very different ballgame than when you've made money and you're doing it another a second time or a third time. So by yes. the time you come to Zimit, you have money. So it's a different, yes. different situation, different starting point. So actually, the, the bootstrapping using services story is really important in CPG. Um, yeah. How did you get your first customer and what, what got you that first customer? Well, it's a great story, right? So Ali and I, my, my partner and I, were both employees of our, of our previous companies, uh, and we, were, we met on a, on a project that their company and our company were working on together. And so we okay. started convincing, we started to convince ourselves. I mean, we were in our mid-20s, right? So, you know, you can convince yourself of a lot of things at that age. And we started to convince ourselves that we could actually, we could make it on our own. We could actually go compete with the companies we work for, even though they were billion-dollar organizations. Mm-hmm. And the, 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 the way we did it was, looking back, was pretty interesting. So at that time, when you were, if, you were, if you were a system integrator, services company, you largely defined your company by the technology that you were assigned, that you were aligned with. So if you yeah. were an SAP implementer, you were, that, that was the definition of your company. And right. what we said is that what's missing in that is that if you're implementing Oracle or SAP at a bank, or you're implementing SAP at a, at a manufacturing company, these are fundamentally different things. Very different, so what yeah. we did but, we but I think that's, not, that thinking has come through into the into industry now. People are looking for not just technology expertise, but also domain knowledge. Yes, but in 1997, it was unheard of. It was not the case. That is correct. So in 1997, your insight was you needed a vertical specialization and a technology platform specialization, and you could go on your own with this other guy uh, who was your yes. co-founder. In that order. In that order. And that was the key. So we really did, at that point, we had both focused on the supply chain-centric industry. So anything from you know, taking orders and quoting and inventory and scheduling and all that, we really did understand that stuff. And I understood the financial side of that really well. Mm-hmm. And so we, when we went to market, um, that's what we led with. So the very first customer was somebody that was implementing technology, and they were specifically looking for people that had expertise in the distribution industry for that particular technology. Mm-hmm. So Ali, my partner, had an opportunity to go meet with that customer, and he said before he left, if I can get the customer to agree that they would go with us, that you'll, you'll, you'll leave your company and we'll, we'll, go to, we'll go in together. So I said, sure, we should, we'll do that. So I'm thinking that there's zero chance of this happening, right? Well, he comes back. We, we had business cards made up the whole nine yards. Sure enough, he comes back and he's like, yeah, they want to go with us. So suddenly, you know, we were both resigning from our positions and walking in the door. What we had at our advantage is we really did understand the technology and we really did legitimately understand the service that we needed to provide, the industry and so forth. And so with that, we hired a few people and started our first project. There were just four or five of us. Um, but we were making you know, five times what I was making as an employee just a few months before. So I thought, man, I, I can't believe everybody doesn't do this. So six months what, into the uh, project. How did you find that first project? So, well, back in that time, there was, a, there, was a, there was far more demand than there was supply. And so um, through a, a conference that we had been at and then presented some solutions that we had built and delivered, um, somebody was in attendance and got our contact, and, and the, the, the number they dialed was Ali's number. And that's how the conversation started. They invited him up. You know, he talked about, 
the solution that we had previously implemented independently at the, of that time through our companies and displayed an incredible amount of knowledge about the topic and far more than they had talked to anybody else. Um, and knowledge and, and expertise is what you're really buying. So they were all in. And they had gone through two or three different implementers and failed. So it was a combination of being in the right place at the right time and also um, you know, having a lot of expertise to offer. And how did you market from there on to $25 million in revenue? What mm-hmm. marketing strategy did you follow? Well, there wasn't one. There were several, and we learned a lot of lessons. So the very first thing that, that, we, that became obvious is that we were very good implementers technically, but we knew nothing about running a company, and literally. And so the first thing you realize is how are you going to sell new deals? How are you going to bring in new customers? And so what we thought was you go knock on the customer's door. Um, you know, they've, they've bought Oracle or whatever technology you're implementing, so you go knock on their door and get their interest. And that proved to be completely unsuccessful. It was very expensive, took a long time. It was terrible. So what we realized is that the more efficient way to do that was to put ourselves inside an ecosystem where we added value to the ecosystem, not necessarily to the end customer. So what we did is we started marketing everything to Oracle. And so when Oracle's selling their technology, they need an implementer to come along for the ride. They have to often propose an implementer or suggest an implementer. Um, and when we made that turn, and we also put focused ourselves industry-wise and geographically to make the market as narrow and as specific as we could possibly make it. And that was very different than what the other implementers were doing. Everybody else was still focused on if there was an Oracle deal, we could implement it for anybody. And we said, no, 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 only call us if it's a supply chain deal. So immediately over time, our brand became very clear to the Oracle ecosystem. And from there, you know, the rest of the story just became a more sophisticated version of that approach. Okay. Um, so now, how did the acquisition happen? <laughs> so we would occasionally get, uh, you know, we would occasionally get solicitations from bankers or whoever, you know, are we interested in selling the company? And we would always entertain it to sort of get a sense of what the company was worth and what's going on in terms of acquisitions. But we never took them very seriously. And one day I got, a, I got an email from a banker in New York that said, I've got a customer, I've got a client that's looking to make an acquisition in the United States for a company that has these criteria. And I thought I was being punked because it was literally, it was like Ali had written it about us. It was that specific. Um, and, I, and, and so that caught my attention because it was very specific. At the same time as that's going on, you know, I, I handled all of the go-to-market approach, and we had decided to move from the mid-market to the enterprise market. So Matt, rather than $500 million companies, focus on the $5 billion companies because we wanted the much bigger deals, that, that much longer relationships. Now, when we made that transition, that took several years to pull off. When we made that transition, we ran into we, – we won deals, but we won fewer of those deals. And I ran into two problems that I, I could not resolve. I didn't know how to resolve them. The first was I was competing against companies that had huge offshore capabilities. So they were able to blend their rates down so low that I couldn't, I couldn't be price competitive. The second problem was the deals got much, much larger, 10, 15, 20, 25, $40 million. And that was more than the revenue in our company. And mm-hmm. I, can't just invent, I couldn't invent revenue. So more than, on more than one occasion, we would be told, you guys are clearly the best. 
you clearly have the most expertise, but we just can't take the risk of picking you because, you know, the contract is 50% of your revenue or whatever. And so those two problems I could not resolve. And that was the first time in my career I felt resigned that, you know, I may not ever be able to fully resolve these two problems because I couldn't go build an offshore practice. You know, that, that would take tens of millions of dollars to be competitive. And I mm-hmm. didn't have that. But when the acquisition offer came along, uh, the, the first time we met with the CEO, he came by himself. This guy had built a $500 million a year business. He was humble. He was smart. He was genuine. Um, and he made us an offer we couldn't turn down. And he allowed us to... And who was that company? The company was KTIT Technologies. Is that Ravi Pandit? It, uh, well, it was, it was Kishore. But the other, it, was, it wasn't Ravi, but it was... It was Kishore. Kishore, okay. All right, very good. Okay, so so now you have sold your company, and what year did you do this transaction? 2010. 2010. So 13 years, $25 million. You you and your co-founder maintained full ownership, and uh, how long did you, what was your earn out? How long did you have to stay or whatever whatever was the term of staying on? Yes. Three years, and we stayed um, a little more than that. So somewhere between, I, I left first, and then Ali left about six months later. So about four years total, end to end. Okay. So 2014 is when you left KPIT. That's right. Mm-hmm. What happens next? What happened next is we took a little, t- look, took a few months off, and um, and you know we had sprinted for 16 years without much of a break. To be frank, mm-hmm. we'd gone from zero to managing a $200 million global operation with, you know, Cummins and GE and Lar- Weatherford and large international customers, very demanding. And so we took a few months off to collect ourselves and to rest. And then Ali and I started having lunch together and we said, well, you know, what do you want to do? Well, what do you want to do? Uh, so it quickly became, what do you not want to do? Because we knew that the one thing that we knew how to do inside and out was to go start another services company, but we just didn't right. have the passion. We just, I mean, we knew that we could start up another company and get to $5 million pretty quickly, but we just didn't have the fire for it. And so we decided to, you know, we decided to, to look at what we know and see if we could make a contribution. We had built a lot of software, so we, know how to, we knew how to do that, but we had never taken it as a, as a software as the sole product. And so we started looking back at what we knew best. And what we knew best was the services market. And, you know, what we, what we recognized was that the, the, the software that had been built for the supply chain market had had decades to mature. And so we had a lot of, lot of experience with orders and order management and quoting and configure price quote and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. But when you got into the services market where we were, literally without any exception, it was all universally being done with spreadsheets, mm-hmm. even at scale, even at hundreds of millions of dollars or billions of dollars in sales. Yeah. It was all. Be- and so in the supply chain world, you're taking an order or taking a, giving a, the customer a quote, and it's tied to inventory, parts, and whatnot. But in the services world, you're doing the exact same thing, but it's just tied to people. And so we decided that we were going to tackle this problem and use our supply chain experience and our knowledge of how quoting is done in the services world, and we were going to build a product, and we were going to take it to market and be the first ones to ever do that. And that's 
that's largely the story of Zimit. That that mission from the very beginning has never really changed. Okay. So tell me how you went about it. Um, again, you used the lesson that you learned of bootstrapping using services. So, so tell me more about how you applied that principle to this business. Yeah, so the first thing we did is sort of got ourselves into a room with a whiteboard and, you know, just the two of us. And we really thought that because we're, we're such experts in this topic that, you know, give us a week or two and we'll, we'll, we'll have this thing all whiteboarded out and we'll have a, a good model of what the problem is, what the solution is, and then we can, we can start building. But like five months later, we still were debating what the problem is and what the solution is. It turns out to be a very, very complex problem, much far more complex than we thought. And as we made phone calls around the industry, as broadly and as deeply as we could make them, um, we just kept finding more and more exceptions. Um, and what, with repeated exposure, those exceptions, a, a pattern emerged over time. But that took time. Um, and so we decided that we were going to focus on a specific sliver of the market, which had no solution. Uh, and it was also the area that we knew best, which was pure professional services. It also yeah. provided the most um, pure example of services. So what we were motiv motivated by wasn't just professional services, but, you know, we recognized that the world was shifting towards everything being sold as a service. So if you're selling anything, hardware, software, you know, services, managed services, it would all be sold as a service. But when you looked at the quoting applications that were available in the market, they had all been built in a generation before, and they were very product-centric. And selling things as a service is a very, very different animal especially yeah. in quoting and price. And so um, early on, you know, it, from the, you know, one of the things that I think we did right, although not right enough, is if we could talk about it, we would get in front of anybody we could and get as much feedback as we could. Some of it was to articulate and to practice talking about it. Um, a lot of it was to get feedback from people on what's important. If I could solve this problem, how much would you pay for it? That sort of stuff. Then when we had screenshots, we would put it in front of people and get feedback. And then when we had screenshots that would animate, we would put it in front of people. And then when we had, you know, prototypes, very simplistic software, we would show it to people. And we got as much feedback. And throughout that process, we built a few relationships with companies that ultimately became our earliest customers. And, you know, we got to that point in time that I think, you know, every entrepreneur should not be afraid of, which is when you, when you have a product that is, kind of sort of ready for the market you're never ready but if you're kind of sort of ready um you need to ask people to pay for it because because that teaches you so much there's so many lessons in what can be learned about that um not only does it help fund the company but what's the price of the product what's it worth how bad does the customer want it does it really solve a problem is it a nice to have is it a need to have where do you fit in their thinking and until yeah. they start paying for something you never really know the answer to that and so we tried to get to, to, you know, to invoicing our customer as fast as possible um, so that not only would it help fund the business, but that we could distill that information and use it for the next, you know, for the next turn. So um, how many customers were part of your early, uh, you know, discovery process in a services mode? 
So there were probably 15 or 20 companies from one end of the spectrum of the other. Not all of them became paying customers uh, for one reason or another. But from that group, um, we were able to get maybe three or four early customers that adopted the software um, and, you know, and deployed it, essentially. And, and, and what was the profile? What was the profile of these 15 customers that you went after in the beginning? And what was your thinking in, in choosing them? And how did you go about finding them, et cetera? Yeah, great question. So we made an early decision um, to go after large enterprise companies. And the reason we did that was they have the biggest problem. They're also the most sophisticated buyer. So they know that the market is not teeming with solutions. They know that what we were introducing is unique. And mm -hmm. so if they were committed to solving the problem, they would be the most likely to spend money with us if we could de-risk it enough for them. If we could take risk off the table, um, they would be the most likely to, um, to partner with us. And so as opposed to the mid-market where, you know, they sort of need a, they need a, a, a mature product that shows up ready to go. Um, and so we decided to work on the sort of the medium and large enterprise market and we focused our energy there, and that turned out to be, you know, that turned out to be a game-changing decision. Right. So now, um, although a very difficult one. What was the reason? The ones who did not convert into paying customers, were you able to figure out why they didn't? Absolutely. In some cases, the industry fit wasn't right. So there were a couple of engineering firms in there, and they have sort of their own unique requirements. And even today, that is not a target market for us, so we do not focus mm -hmm. on that market. In some cases, there were some companies in there that turned out to be too small, and that's what, that's what validated our decision to focus on the large market rather than the small market. Mm -hmm. um, one or two companies, the contacts that we had, et cetera, changed positions, and there was just we could never um, – re-engage the right people so the momentum was lost. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, there were one or two examples where they just couldn't get comfortable with an early-stage company. Um, and so we increasingly whittled that list down to a small number of companies that were earlier adopters culturally, really serious about solving the problem, um, and very interested in getting behind and sort of shaping the solution and being part of that journey. And I think one of the things that entrepreneurs don't think about a lot is, you know, when they talk about, you know, here's my market, and they segment their market, they spend some time, good ones think about segmenting their market and really scrubbing that list. But the thing that they never do or often miss is you're not just looking – if my customer is, needs to be a $500 million services company in North America, that's not where the conversation ended. I needed one of those companies on the early adopter part of the equation. So finding companies that will make that adoption earlier rather than later is really key, and that was what we focused on. And we figured out ways in talking to companies early on to figure out if that was something that they would be up for. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, um, so three or four out of the 14, 15 companies that you started the process with converted into paying customers. What kind of average deal size did they convert at? Mm. Probably the initial deal size was maybe 50 to 75K annual okay. ARR. Yeah. And, um, and what time frame are we talking from the 
proof of concept or the services project mode to becoming paying customers? So paying customers really showed up in 2018. Um, 17, maybe, I guess there might have been one early in or middle of 17, but in mass, as we're describing, it really showed up in early 18 is really when that started. So um, from a bootstrapping with services methodology point of view, yeah. did you structure these 14, 15 deals as paying services projects? Absolutely. So this is where yeah. the services background really changed everything for us. So we showed up to the game a little bit naive about software because it had, we had never built a commercial enterprise-scale software at this level, with this level of sophistication, or with the technologies that we were working. So we were mm -hmm. on a very steep learning curve for the first few years. But the one thing we did know how to do was deploy software and manage a services business. We, we knew how mm -hmm. to do that inside and out. Right. And so what we did is when we worked with those, these are large enterprise customers, they realize there's going to be a deployment. They realize that there are professional services involved, and we charged for it. We charged less than they would otherwise be paying from Deloitte or whoever. So we looked inexpensive for them, but for us, um, that cash flow um, is probably the single reason why, financially speaking, you know, we've been able to do what we've done. And so we have made a habit of delivering very high-quality projects um, at, a, at, a, at a pretty good margin and using that cash flow to fund the business uh, as our software has, has you know, we've subsidized the software until the software, the critical mass of that software catches up. Okay. So let's start talking about revenue growth. As you were starting to find product market fit and the product was becoming, you know, going beyond the services mode into a productized um, mm -hmm. version, what, how was the revenue ramping up? So it grew very quickly, right? So as soon as we put our, mark, our product out into the market, we, we found a couple of different avenues, um, you know, a couple of ponds, if you will, where our target market tends to congregate. Um, and it took us a little while to figure that out, but we finally figured out certain conferences and um, certain venues online where we could do blog posts and things like that. Yeah. And, and immediately, as soon as we put the product out, we just got overrun with demand, just right off the bat. Not all of it was going to translate into immediate revenue, of course. These are sales cycles. Um, but we just got overrun with so much demand. Mm -hmm. um, and we had a hard time processing it because these are large companies, uh, mostly. And we had a few number of people. So trying to uh, manage the sales cycles took you know, more capacity than we had. So we had to be very good and very clear about um, who is going to be focused on and, and who maybe is not the right customer um, and treated accordingly. So we shifted our energy to the biggest, most interesting, um, you know, best fit for us from our perspective. And we put all of our energy there, you know, in between starting at 18 to 19, 19 to 20, and now 2021, you know, we've had, you know, hundreds of percent growth every year. And what was that sweet spot that you identified and why? What, what was the analysis of the sweet spot? This, by the way, the reason I like to spend time on, mm -hmm. on that is, you know, positioning makes or breaks companies. So how you position your company, how you define the segmentation, and the narrower, yeah. the more focused your segmentation, your positioning is, the sharper the fit. 
So what was that? What was that definition of your position? So we, we learned something very, very interesting that I think just, you know, a small percentage of the, of the world really understands because unless you've sold to these groups, you don't really understand. So what we imagine two markets for my software. My software is quoting and pricing software for enterprise services. So I could sell it to a consulting firm that, say, implements technology, or I could sell it to an embedded services team, say, Workday, Workday Professional Services. Mm -hmm. Now, you would imagine these groups are doing the exact same job. They're both deploying technology. But what we realized is that each one of these groups buy from their perspective of pain and and what they want to focus on, completely different, totally different. Even though they're running essentially similar businesses, one group buys for one reason and another group buys for a totally different reason and is worried about other things. And what it Mm -hmm. turned out to be is that the embedded services teams were the ones that felt the most pressure and the most pain because they were really, you know, in, in Workday's case, let's say, it's a $500 million business out of, out of say, $3 billion or $4 billion. Mm-hmm. Yet it, they have the lowest margins, and they're also the, the, the complexity, and they slow down the technology deal. So they're under constant pressure to go faster, be better, lose less money, deliver the product, get the quote to the customer, you're slowing down our deal. And what we re- realized is that every, all the technology companies, the, the medium and large-scale technology companies, the services businesses inside those companies are under an incredible amount of pressure. Meanwhile, the consulting companies, they have no relative comparison. They don't have a technology product being sold. So the way they perceive pain here is slightly different. They perceive pain not that they want to be a lot better at quoting, but they want the information in quoting so they can forecast resource demand. And so they go at the problem for completely different reasons. And so the very first focus that we had was to focus exclusively on the embedded services team. And that became Dell and Siemens and Workday and all of those companies like that were the ones that adopted our technology. Mm-hmm. So that's actually extremely easy to prospect for, right, in some ways, that definition, because yeah. those, you know, there are a lot of software companies that have professional services arms, and, and there's yeah. a head of professional services in each of those companies. You can go for yeah. a certain size and so on. So yeah. that's, you know, that, that positioning is very sharp and very well defined. Is yeah. that, does that still continue to be your sweet spot? It is. It, it tends to be the the biggest, um, the biggest, uh, the biggest line share and where we, we focus the most, what we added that expanded our market was we added partnerships. So we sought out um, professional service automation platforms, ERP platforms, that targeted the same customers, knowing that they don't have our functionality. So if they did, and we partnered with those companies, we may be able to add a competitive differentiation in that deal. Mm-hmm. And the one that showed up and, and where that really kicked in was with Workday. So Workday does not have a quoting or pricing platform in their financials or PSA product at all. And so when they were competing in the market, in some deals, the customer said, hey, well, I don't want to just implement Workday and still have a bunch of spreadsheets. So if we add Zimit, then we have a more complete story. And we can go all the way to the CRM system, all the, from the opportunity in CRM, all the yeah. way to financials in, in, in Workday, and it's a complete thought. And... Um, and that broadened our market because Workday is outselling deals to consulting firms and all sorts of services companies. 
Um, mm-hmm. And that broadened our market, and I was able to draft behind a much, much larger player that's doing a lot of the heavy lifting for us. Mm-hmm. So are there other players like Workday that you have partnered with? We have. We've partnered with Financial Force as well. That's, so I wanted, I wanted to be in two, two ecosystems to start with. I, can't, I, I, I don't have the manpower to have more than that, really. To, to, you yeah. know, if you're going to form a partnership, you have to, you have to be committed. There's money involved. Yeah, yeah. There are people. You have to really do it. And so we picked two ecosystems. One was Workday because they are essentially a services-centric company. They're focusing on non, non-supply chain-centric industries. And yeah. the other one we wanted was uh, we wanted something in the Salesforce ecosystem, and that yeah. turned out to be Financial Force um, okay. and, um, and their PSA product. And they're, they're easily the most dominant PSA product, you know, in that, in that ecosystem. And we've formed a really good relationship. And some of our largest customers have come from that relationship. Okay, very good. And how many people do you have? About 65. 65. And what level of revenue have you gotten to so far? So I don't want that to be made public because we do, you know, we do keep that private, but we're in the 10 million range. Okay. So uh, what should we report it as? I mean, our uh, threshold is 5 million plus, so you're, to be even featured, you're 5 million plus, but you don't want us to report you as a 10 million plus company. I mean, you can. If, if it, it doesn't matter. We just we try not to get into specifics on that. Um, yeah, we can just say we just can report it as a, a over ten million dollar in revenue. That's right. Something. There you go. Yeah, perfect. And is there any outside financing, or you you purely bootstrap with services? So we bootst- we bootstrapped it with services for the first few years, and then we brought in um, we did a small angel round for one million dollars in nineteen in uh, spring uh, I think March of two thousand nineteen, and then as part Why? of the well. There was a few things. Um, the services business um, was capable of funding the business, but as I started to add customers, I started. I needed to make investments deeper into the future. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the way we, when we first got going, you know, it was when a customer deploy, when a customer deploy, almost like a project centric view of the world. That's yep. fine for the first few customers. In fact, I encourage all all entrepreneurs, all founders, to take that approach initially. But after a while, in order to continue that growth, instead of having one customer, you go to two, and then two to four, and four to eight, et cetera, particularly with large enterprise customers, needs pop up that require you to make investments deeper into the future. And that went further out than, than the cash flow from our services could provide. And so as a function of that, we decided to take $1 million of capital um, to, you know, to sort of accelerate and plug some gaps in the company and bring in some new people and things of that nature. Still only $1 million, not a huge amount of money, particularly in enterprise software. Um, and then what we were not planning to do, but it got presented as an opportunity, was later in 2019, um, through that, that relationship that we had built with Workday, Workday Ventures uh, came along and, you know, we're very happy with the type yeah. of work we were doing and uh, made an investment in the company as well. So the in the one million angel round, did you and your partner participate? We did not. We did not. Interesting. Okay. And uh, how much money did Workday Ventures put in? Two million. Two million. So the total capitalization of the company is three million dollars. That's right. Terrific. 
So very, very capital efficient, uh, strategic way of building the business. Um, yeah, you know, mm-hmm. like services, like you had mentioned, services, you know, have, you know, a lot of companies will bootstrap when they're in a pure services business. You know, the challenge with enterprise software is that it becomes very capital intensive in the front, in the front end. Um, and so, you know, balancing that, we use services to balance that, and we, um, you know, we tried not to give our software away either. You know, we, we tried to really sell value and really work with the customers, and the combination oh, no, of that. We are very big fans of uh, building enterprise software companies using services as a bootstrapping methodology. So I think your the story that you just shared is a textbook case study of exactly what that methodology is that we promote constantly. Now, I got to tell you, you're one of the few people that I've ever, ever that I've ever heard that from because when I you know, I have entertained the idea of venture capital, and I, I haven't found a single, a single VC that, um, I mean, they're just diametrically opposed to it completely. And if I were giving advice to an early-stage founder that was just in the beginning stages, I would tell them that that services business is their lifeline. It's not, yeah. just, it's not just the capital, but it's also you're as close to that customer as you can possibly be. The lessons that you learn from deploying your software is yeah. everything. Customer intimacy, absolutely. You know, if you follow my work, you will see I am very contrarian on a lot of methodology elements of mm-hmm. how to build a venture, mm-hmm. and that's all based on case study work. You know, I, I'm not pulling this out of, you know, the hat. I'm, I have talked yeah. With thousands of entrepreneurs, and I, what the methodology that we have built in One Million by One Million is a proven methodology that is supported by case studies and is validated by entrepreneurs who are using this methodology. So we are bootstrapping with services, we are bootstrapping with a paycheck, we are bootstrapping yeah. by piggybacking on past platforms. All these, all these nuances of bootstrapping are all tried and true methods. 100% agree. And the only other person that I ran into was Mark Peek, who is the former CFO at Workday. He now runs mm-hmm. Workday Ventures. And when I told him my frustrations with maybe looking to raise capital and, and what I had, the feedback I'd gotten from the venture capital community, he told me, he said, oh, James, just ignore all that. He goes, I took Workday public, and we were doing about 85% of all of our implementations ourselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He said, just put your head down and run the business. Don't worry about it. There is a whole you know, bias in the venture industry that needs to be ignored. That is exactly right. Completely. So, All right. Well, it's a pleasure speaking with you. We will uh, definitely uh, look forward to covering the story, and uh, let's keep in touch. I wish you all the very best. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Bye, James. Bye-bye.